We are in the midst of a series called Honest to God, where we are reflecting on psalms, especially psalms that are very raw and honest and authentic. And so this morning, I'm going to be talking about Psalm 22. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure why the Lord laid it on my heart to share this message this morning, but I pray wherever you are at, and maybe especially for some of you at home, that this message would connect with you where you're at. Because we've had a lot of things happen in the past year, not just COVID, but just a lot of things, including things recently, that are those kind of moments that sort of feel like a gut punch. Or, feel, or take you off base, or make you feel a little unsure. And so I want to read this psalm this morning and expound on it. This is a psalm of David. It's, it's heavy. The psalm begins abruptly with a disturbing scene. Someone who has known and trusts God completely and then feels forsaken and cries out to God in agony. As David wrote this psalm, he never specifically wrote about what the specific issue was. And so this psalm has become sort of a timeless testimony applicable to across the ages for those of us who are in the midst of suffering and feel like God is absent. As as I read the first 11 verses, you're going to see that David sort of has this flip-flop going on in his spirit He alternates between this kind of deep, deep despair and then this confident trust as he laments in God's silence. And so I'm going to read it to you. And you may be familiar with the first words of this psalm because it's one of the last words that Jesus spoke when he was on the cross. So hear the word of the Lord. My God, My God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. And by night I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. They, to you, they cried out, and they were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you, and my mother's, from my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In our own way, you and I will pray this prayer if we seek to be followers of God and seek intimacy with God. Times of seeming desertions and absence of God are sort of a universal experience of people of faith. 
Have you ever tried to pray but felt nothing, sensed nothing, felt nothing? Prayers bounced off the ceiling. Times when you desperately needed God's assurance, but nothing came. You needed that assurance and that confirmation. Your hope seems thin. We question, we doubt, we struggle. We feel abandoned by friends and family at times. Especially there's times when God seems absent or silent. Now, it's not a true absence. I'll unpack that more later. But it's a sense of absence. Times when God may withdraw or we just feel like God's, our consciousness of God's presence is, is not there. It's like when dark clouds roll in and it obscures, obscures the sunshine. Or as one of the writers I read said, John Bloom, he said, it's like an eclipse of God in the sky of my soul where something is blocking my experience of God's presence. John Ortberg describes it as spiritual winter in his book, God is Closer Than You Think, which has been very helpful to me as I prepared this message. And he, he makes this powerful quote. He says, you can relocate to avoid physical winter, but you cannot escape spiritual winter. Sometime in our lifetimes, it's going to hit. It's appropriate to call it spiritual winter because sometimes we just feel dry and barren, parched and cold. And this morning, I'm going to share a little bit insights that I wish that I knew or just grab points that you can hang on to when you may find yourself in these moments. Some of you may be in that now. Some of you may have been in it recently. Some of you may find yourself there at some time in the future. And so I pray my words this morning would, would be ones that would be encouraging to you and would also sort of maybe be filed away for those times. So what insights can we gain from David and from Jesus about these times? One is, is that this is a common struggle. I wish I knew this when I was younger. Forsakenness is a well-traveled road. You are not alone in this experience. Think of Moses when he was exiled, waiting year after year for God to free his people. Or the psalmist who says, I say to God, my rock, why have you, for, why have you forgotten me? Or Elijah, when he cries out and thinks he's the only faithful one in all of Israel. Mary, when she was lonely in her vigil at the cross. Golgotha, or Jesus when he was on the cross experiencing his crucifixion. Now here's, something, here's some things you may not want to conclude or not appropriate. Facing God's hiddenness or when, when you're feeling forsaken by God, it does not mean that God is necessarily displeased with you or that you are insensitive to God's spirit or that you've committed some horrendous offense or that something is wrong with you. You know, each one of our journeys is unique. Sometimes God seems far away for reasons we don't understand. But those moments, too, are an opportunity to learn. 
We can enter a time of feeling forsaken at any time in our Christian walk. There's no maps. There's no preset timetable. It's not a badge of maturity or a lack of maturity. It doesn't mean you're a second-rate Christian or that you may falsely be tempted to conclude, hey, I just must have bad faith. John Calvin in his commentary concluded that the sense of being forsaken by God is far from being unique. It's not rare. He says, there is not one of the godly who does not daily experience something himself of the same thing, of that feeling of forsakenness. Now, for me, let me tell you a little bit of my own journey and why this, why this message is, is encouraging to me and helpful. So there's been several times in my life where I've entered this spiritual winter. Sometimes short seasons, other, there's, there's a few of them that were longer. One of them was when I was studying abroad in London, England as a junior in college, and I got a letter from my girlfriend, not my wife Rita, who I've been married to happily for 31 years, but from a girlfriend who wrote me and said, I don't think we should date a Dear Chris letter. And she even wrote me and sort of said, I don't even know if you're a Christian, which was difficult to take when you're on your own in London. Or there was a time where I was um, serving a ministry and was deeply hurt by that ministry. Not here, but felt like, wow, I'm trying to serve God. I don't understand why I would be wounded in this way. Or some of you are aware that my father was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's when I was at the age of 13, when he was 51, and for the next 13 years struggled with Alzheimer's. And just suffice to say, throughout that whole season of those 13 years, I wondered, where is God? Why is he not listening? Why is he not fixing this situation? And we'll stop there. Have you ever been there? had a difficult diagnosis, an unexpected hurt, the death of a spouse or a close friend or a family member too young, had an unforeseen twist at work. Maybe you're a, a excuse me, Maybe you're alone in a new place. Or you have a crisis in a relationship, like I had when I thought the person I was going to marry broke up with me. Or you have a regret, a crippling regret that you can't change. Or you've experienced abuse in some manner. It could be one of these or many other situations, or it could be none of these, no dramatic event at all. And somehow you've slipped from the warm fellowship of God's presence, and now it feels like God is gone. Very disorienting time. So what can we learn from David in this Psalm 22? One of the things that we can learn is that we can learn to pray the prayer of complaint. 
Because see, ironically, when it seems like God has left, sometimes we want to run away. I know I do. It's like, I I just want to be alone. I want to quit praying and I want to run away. But that's not what the psalmist did. It's not what Jesus did either. What God calls us to do in these times is to move towards him and towards the pain. In the midst of his loss on the cross, Jesus prayed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had these two things together, which we can learn. He had this confidence in the character of God and this exasperation at the inaction of God. Where are you, God? Why are you silent? But he, at the same time, refers to him not as God or some presence. He says, you're my God. Reaffirms this kind of personal connection in the midst of the intense void. And you and I might feel this absence like David felt sometimes. And when we do, we can ask God questions. We can ask questions we don't have answers to. When we ask God those hard questions, we still know that God will not go away from us. There are times when I wondered, I don't know if God's going to want to hear what I have to say. Asking these questions does not mean that our belief in God is shaky. Instead, it shows that we worship a God that's big enough and personal enough to hear our questions about being alone and being sad or being sick. The second thing is, I invite you to wait and stop and be still. If you find yourself feeling devoid of the presence of God, slow down. For me, what does it for me best is to get out into nature. For my whole life, I've lived near Lake Michigan, and so when my father was sick, often I would go to the Northwestern University campus and walk and look out over the city of Chicago and just sort of get my bearings. Here, I go out to the lake, walk the lake shore, walk out to the pier, and it helps me get a new perspective. Slow yourself down. Don't jump into a rash decision because all of us hate these moments. And sometimes we're tempted just to make a decision to relieve the anxiety of the struggle. Don't make major decisions during those dark nights. Set aside major decisions for a time when you're more collected. And maybe get some good counsel from a close friend or a pastor or a counselor. Maybe you can't go forward, and it's okay to be still, but, but don't go in reverse. Put your spiritual life in neutral and firmly and deliberately say something to God like this. I don't know what God's doing or even where God is, but I know that he's out to do me good. Let me say that again. I don't know what God is doing. I don't even know where he is, but I know that he's out to do me good. And in these moments, when we slow ourselves down and we wait, God produces humility, 
and patience and perseverance. These moments of feeling forsaken can produce a habit of prayer. When the distractions are gone, we get fo- when we're thirsty, we get focused. And that longing and that hurt can lead us into a deeper sense of prayer. One thing I read this week that was extremely helpful was a blog by John Bloom in Desiring God. And he, in his time of feeling forsaken or his dark night, he said, I determined that God, not my doubts, deserved the benefit of the doubt. And I determined to do something that aircraft pilots must do. He trusted his instruments. See, there's a time when a pilot, when they're flying... If they're flying into a cloud or a fog, they can lose their point of reference. And it becomes a dangerous thing for them to, t- to trust their physical perceptions. They might feel like they're flying straight when they're actually descending towards the ground. So they must learn to trust what the plane's instruments are telling them. Some of you know my son-in-law, Mark Winter, who I hope is watching. I think they are from El Paso, Texas. I talked to him yesterday and I said, Mark, what's it like to learn to fly by your instruments? And he, he, he didn't have a ton to say, but he, he said, you know what? It's hard to fight your instincts. It's hard to trust the instruments. And what you, how you learn to trust your instruments is to practice and practice and practice. To get comfortable when, when you're feeling in that moment. And so John Bloom talks about this. He says, so I began in this time of dark night to fly according to the instruments of God's word. And not my perceptions of the world or the situation that I was in. So my challenge to you and to me is to get into the word. To read psalms like this. To keep praying even if it seems like it's not working. To avoid isolation. To, to use that anchor of fellowship. To find honest support with a friend or a mentor or a parent. And here's what David does. He recalls the past. In Psalm 22, verse 3, it says, Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one that Israel praises. In our ancestors, in you, our ancestors put their trust. And they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out, and they were saved. In you they trusted, and were not put to shame. When we're in those times of feeling forsaken, it feels like God is absent. We can remember and reflect on the promises that God has fulfilled in the past. We can recall the future promises that one day we shall be completely united with him, made like him. And when we remember the past and when we think forward to the future, it can transform our present circumstances and give us hope and strength and perspective. My last thought is this. Let these moments 
Let these moments drive you to Jesus. You see, this psalm, which I did not know, is also called a psalm of the crucifixion. Because Jesus referred to this Psalm 22 at the beginning to describe what he was experiencing during his last moments on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. When Jesus was starting to feel the weight of sin on the cross, he referred to this. He was rehearsing and recalling this psalm. He might have known it by heart. Because you see, David, who wrote this psalm 1,000 years earlier, did not experience everything in this psalm. And it's such a vivid description of the crucifixion that you think the writer was personally there at the cross, but it was written 1,000 years before. What a fulfillment. Crucifixion wasn't even invented yet when this psalm was written. So let me read some of these words to you, and you may hear echoes of Jesus on the cross. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey. They open, mouth, they open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Referring to Jesus nailed to the cross. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them, and they cast lots for my garment. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions and save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Jesus chose the beginning words of Psalm 22 to describe his agony on the cross. And what's happening now in this moment when Jesus is on the cross is that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who never knew any distance from the Father, was experiencing a severing from his fellowship with the Father due to the weight of our sin, yours and mine. The weight of the world and the weight of our sin and brokenness was being heaped on him as he began his process of re reconciling the world through his death. Now I share this this morning not to make us feel guilty, but I want you to see how much Jesus loves you. Jesus learned in this moment on the cross the cost of his wholehearted obedience to the Father. And never did we see his glory more on display than when he was on the cross. 
Jesus' forsakenness in this moment on the cross is utterly unique and unrepeatably, unrepeatable. There is a way that Jesus experienced forsakenness that we will never experience because of what he experienced. Jesus took our God-forsakenness completely upon himself. And here's the truth that I want you to hear, the encouraging truth I want you to hear from, from this. As real and difficult and painful as our suffering can be, you and I will never experience the full forsakenness of, because Jesus experienced it on our behalf. It is a theological impossibility for God to leave us or forsake us. He promised in his word to never leave us or forsake us. And because Jesus knows the full reality of being forsaken, and he demonstrates how far he is willing to go, he didn't avoid the depths. I want you to hear this morning that no one is more qualified to be your helper and transformer when you are in those moments, when you and I are in those moments when we wonder, God, why are you silent? Why are you absent? I need you, God. So I pray that that would strengthen you today to know how much Jesus loves you. You see, here's, here's the amazing thing. The cross is the ultimate paradox because God, in the form of Jesus, is experiencing the absence of God so that he can draw near to you and I in our loss and grief. And he doesn't just draw near to us so that he can stand with us, which he certainly does. He can transform it. And Jesus can transform our sufferings. And we celebrate this morning the fact that on Pentecost, because of what Jesus did by his death and his resurrection, we now can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who can be present with us always. And that new life, that resurrection power, isn't just something that happened to Jesus. It's what's alive and transforming our lives here and now. There's a song that we used to sing a lot on campus when I served as a campus minister. And here it's called You Are My King by Chris Tomlin. And it says this, and I hope it speaks to why we should be encouraged today. It says this, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me because you died and you rose again. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true. It's my joy to honor you. In all I, in all I do, I honor you. So I pray this morning, wherever you are at, that you would feel as real as it can feel that God is absent, he is not absent. He actually identified. He didn't avoid our suffering. He didn't avoid getting muddy in this world. He entered as deeply as anyone could into the depths of our pain and our loss. And so I pray you would know wherever you're at that this is not the final word. 
but one day we shall be united with him and that right now, not just in the future, right now, you have God's spirit that can work in you. And I pray that if you have not received Jesus in your life, that you would take a moment now and say, Lord, I need you. Thank you for taking my shame, my sin, my suffering upon yourself. And thank you for the new life that you bring and the spirit that you give. Jesus knows and Jesus transforms our moments of pain. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, it is so hard when we are in the moments of this life where we feel like we've had an eclipse of our soul. But I thank you for the truth and the reality that Jesus loved us so much to enter into our world, to experience our forsakenness so that we might be able to be transformed and to stand in this world as a light and a witness to God's relentless love. Lord, whoever is listening, I pray that you may encourage their spirit and that they may look for you even when it seems that you're not listening. But we know, Lord, that you are. And we pray it in Jesus' name and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.